podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to a special bonus Red Inca, which of course means it's not really a Red Inca at all. This episode is from my other podcast, Double Century, which is on the history of cricket. And today it has started Series 3. And the theme of this season is the first time that teams beat England. We will drop the first episode here, but if you like what you hear, please search for Double Century in your podcast apps and listen there. We'll be looking at every team and how they have beaten England for that first big win. Enjoy! The Australians came down like a wolf on the fold. The Marleybone cracks for a trifle were bold. Our grace before dinner was very soon done, and grace after dinner did not get a run. Punch, May, 1878. There was no selection committee, or even a nation to represent yet. And yet the reason these guys were making the tour to England was not for the good of the game. It was because these middle-class professionals saw a way of making some money from cricket. They spent £50 each to form a collective and made their way to England to represent Australia on a tour. One of the players they'd go up against was Alan Steele. When he introduced the squad, he introduced Fred Spoffers as the Demon N-Word Bowler. This was 1878, and because the previous team had been Indigenous, the locals expected the same. A bit like that previous tour, no one in the UK thought this was a real team worth worrying about. Even before this, the English players had thought of them as a bit of a joke. Australia had already beaten England in what we now recognise as the first test, but that was on the other side of the world. And no one thought that was a strong team. It was, after all, graceless. Grace said of the Australian tourists, We never for a moment thought of classing them with an English team. Charles Alcock, Secretary of Surrey, remarked, The idea of a visit from an Australian team was at first treated as something of a joke by the English cricketers. But the MCC would host the Australians in 1878 at Lords. 4,742 people turned up to see the game. The MCC had Monkey Hornby, George Hearn, Alfred Shaw, Greg Morley and Grace. They weren't just there to win, they actively wanted to humiliate these Australians. This was supposed to be a three-day match. It didn't last one and it changed cricket forever. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. This is the beginning of Series 3. And this time, we're going to be looking at when cricket nations had their first big win over England. Episode 1 is about Australia, looking at two incredible matches that helped build up the Ashes and international cricket. There was a storm at Lords on the 27th of May. It had been very wet in the early summer, but this was almost enough rain to finish off the day before it started. Then the sun broke out, and the pitch became playable, and the MCC batted first. W.G. Grace, father of cricket, opened the batting. He swung a ball to leg. Later, he would do it again. But the Australian captain, Dave Gregory, had told Billy Midwinter to move into that gap as the bowler was coming in. That would now be illegal in cricket, but wasn't at the time. When Grace went out, the crowd cheered. They didn't really know the Australians. They were just happy that the underdogs had started well. England lost one more wicket and then pushed the score along as best they could. And at 27 for two... Fred Spofforth came on to bowl. First change bowlers usually give respite. That was not the case with Fred Spofforth, or the Demon, as he was known. A bank clerk from Sydney. He was born in Balmain, but to a bank clerk father from Yorkshire. He'd started his career as a lob bowler, literally 
underarming the ball up high and landing it near the batter. But like many Australians, he'd been inspired by the round and overarm bowling of the early English tourists. Spoffer had an obsessive personality, and he learned everything he could about bowling, and then he practiced it until he was conquering that skill. Batters said that looking into his eyes was like looking at death itself. The batter would stare at him, then look away, only to look back, and he'd still be staring straight through them. He looked like a theatre demon. He acted like a real one. His giant hooked beak nose, that's how it was written at the time anyway, flared. His moustache bristled with bloodlust. Richard Hodgson, a vicar, said he reminded him of the spirit of evil enforced. His hair parted down the middle to give the impression of horns. He might as well have had fangs and a cape. But this was just how he looked. His bowling was even more scary. His run-up was quite simple. It was a slow run of around 10 to 12 paces. Not a fearless charge, more of a polite jog. At the crease, he had this maniacal action that would summon up hellfire and unleash it on his enemies, turning from comic book villain to actual bringer of the apocalypse. A giant mutant, half man, half octopus, standing well above you, limbs flailing in every direction, and the ball spinning out of him at a pace quicker than any human had really bowled before. But more important than all that was the demon had swerve. And by swerve, we mean swing. There was a thought at the time that swing was an optical illusion. But Spoffeth knew that it was real and wanted to make it better. Spoffeth had studied baseball pitching and would write to a university professor asking him to explain why the ball was actually swinging. Sadly, the reply said that it was impossible. He looked into articles on aerodynamics. And think about this, this was the late 1800s and he was still a more dedicated professional than many today. He was like Glenn McGrath, but more book smart, quicker in his day and probably far more evil. Being that overarm bowling had just been legalised and was now becoming widespread, it makes sense that no one had bowled with swing before. Spotheth told people that he could swing the ball out, in, up and down. The batter must have believed that the ball was possessed. In truth, it looks like he only swung it in. Later in his career, he would also develop a slower and faster balls that looked the same to batters. He couldn't have worried batters more if he'd actually told them he'd sold his soul to the devil at midnight. And on a Lord's pitch with rain, on the 27th of May... 1878, he became all those things that they had written about him. His first over went for two runs. He would go for two more runs in that entire innings. And in giving those two more runs, the MCC had gone from 27 for two to all out for 33. The Demon had, well, basically eaten their souls. They were four ball overs, and he bowled 5.3 of them, with three maidens, four runs, and six wickets. Australia didn't actually do that much better than the MCC with a bat. Somehow they found a lead of eight runs. The talk around the ground was that Grace would fix the demon. He would tame him and destroy the others. This was the non-such in the home of the sport that he built. He wouldn't allow this Aussie freak to torment them any further. In the second innings, Spotheth beat him first ball. Next ball, Spotheth yelled, bold. The MCC would lose, within a day, by nine wickets, to a bunch of blokes who paid 50 quid to travel there who weren't good enough to play against England. The Demon took 10 for 20 in the match. Seven of his victims were bowled, and he sent one off retired hurt. Spotheth had screamed at the home of cricket. With that one day, cricket became truly international. Those in England could no longer ignore what had happened. Australia had beaten a touring side and the MCC at home. This was heading for proper international contests. Had Spotheth or Boyle, who took 9 for 19 in the same game, had bad days, the MCC would have charged ahead. The whole tour would have been little more than a decent moneymaker for those involved. 
But England couldn't ignore this. Greece had been destroyed. A new team had arrived and cricket had taken a leap forward. A great rivalry was starting. England had God. Australia had the devil. Spofforth and Boyle had bowled Australia into the cricket conversation in 1878 and the Australians were next to England in 1880. But it wasn't all great for Australia, as when they arrived in England, few teams wanted to play them after a riot had broken out in a match involving the England tourists the previous summer. Lord Harris was at the SCG for that riot, and he was still very much upset. Not one match was scheduled for London, and the Australians even had to advertise to find opponents. Gloucestershire was willing to play them though, and Gloucestershire was the home of the Graces. Both teams struggled in the first innings, but Walter Gilbert, a Grace cousin, and E.M. Grace did enough to give Gloucestershire a good first innings lead of 81 runs. Australia finally found some runs in the second innings, and they ended up with a 165-run lead at the close of play on day two. That night, W.G. Grace asked for the pitch to be rolled, and it was. Then before play the next day, W.G. Grace wanted the pitch rolled again. Billy Murdoch, who had also played for Gloucestershire, complained. But Grace got what he wanted in most situations. But in Clifton, Gloucestershire, he was infallible. The pitch was rolled for a second time, and a flat batting pitch was made flatter. Murdoch was angry. Spotheth was rage. He carved Gloucestershire out for 7 for 54 to give Australia a comfortable victory. It was the oval that broke the London ban, which was difficult for many reasons. Surrey and Lord Harris had to be convinced, and Sussex actually had a game scheduled that had to be moved. Eventually, Lord Harris put together a side for a test match. The England team was very strong. It included not one, not two, but a hat-trick of graces. They also included professionals. It would be the first test ever played in England and the best attended match in memory. It was also WG Grace's first test, and with the help of Swafford being out injured, Grace made runs. In the first innings, he made 152. Australia replied with 149. Before the game, Grace and Murdoch, former teammates at Gloucestershire, had a friendly bet for one sovereign, out of which one of them would be the top scorer in the game. In the first innings, Murdoch didn't score, but Australia were asked to follow on. And at 187 for 8, it wasn't looking good, but Murdoch was still there. He batted for another 140 runs with the last two wickets. In doing so, Grace said he played one of the best innings ever. And Murdoch beat Grace in the match by one run, winning the sovereign from Grace. He wore that around his neck for the rest of his life. Still, Murdoch could only get Australia a lead of 56, and it was not nearly enough. Harris clearly thought the game was over and sent out his numbers 8 and 9 to slog their way to a low total. Instead, Australia were inspired by their captain and had England 31 for 5, which is when people began to panic and also when WG Grace came in and that pretty much ended the game. The performance of Murdoch on and off the field and the loss itself healed the riot wounds forever. This was really the first test where two very strong teams were up against each other. And it may not quite be test cricket as we know it now, but this was certainly the beginning of it. And it was very clear at this point that England was slightly better. In 1882, Australia came back to England again. At this point, it's worth noting that there had been eight tests played between England and Australia. And Australia had won five of them. England had only won that 1880 test. But that was the only time that England had put out a strong team. The 1882 tour was going very well for Australia. Hugh Massey started with a huge 206 against Oxford, one of the strongest teams in England. Against Lancashire, the county champions, Spotsworth took 16 wickets. The England team for the Oval Test was far better on paper. Australia had Billy Murdoch as their star batter and captain, but their batting was clearly weak, and it had been pretty much since the beginning. They still had Spotsworth and Boyle with the ball, 
but they were bowling against a batting lineup of Grace and many others who had scored over 10,000 first-class runs. England were a better team in better form. Australia batted first and their innings lasted 84 ball overs. They made 63 runs. By 3.30, England were batting. Spotheth, who was disgusted with his batters, took it out on England and got rid of Grace, and practically everyone else. Although, it should be noted that Spotheth didn't take the opportunity to mancat, though this was well before it was called that, Monkey Hornby. England stuttered on. They passed Australia's score, and then on the verge of stumps, they were all out for 101. Spotheth had taken 7 for 46, but England already had a handy lead after only one day of cricket. Hugh Massey would play nine tests for Australia as a batter. He would average 15 and make one score over 50. It just happened to be that this was that day. Massey clearly decided that he might as well hit out, and in a Foranda Sewag-style gambit, he hit as hard and as long as he could. Australia was scoring at quicker than a run a minute. Bannerman was hardly hitting it off the square at one end. Statistician Charles Davis has estimated that his strike rate in test cricket would have been 22, while Massey was smashing it at the other end. Along the way, he was dropped at long off, but in all, he hit nine fours and made 55 from 62 balls. In terms of runs, it couldn't compare to his dazzling 206 against Oxford. But when you're talking about the history of English versus Australian cricket, 55 runs have rarely ever been that important. Despite the start Massey gave them, the batters were still quite clearly struggling. Murdoch was trying to hold them together, and coming in at number eight was young Sammy Jones. Jones was a handy all-rounder. He and Murdoch moved the total to 114, and then Murdoch kicked the ball into the leg side. They completed an easy single as the keeper threw the ball into the stumps, and WG Grace went to pick the ball up. Jones, according to some, looked at him and nodded, and then walked down the wicket and attended to the pitch, a little bit of gardening. He was paying no attention to what Grace did behind him. While Jones tapped the pitch, Cricket's God whipped off the bales. God then turned to the square leg umpire and appealed. The umpire gave it. God claimed the wicket and Murdoch was furious and complained directly to the Almighty. Even other English players complained. But WG Grace did not care and the umpires didn't change their mind. Under the laws of cricket, Jones was run out. 50 years would pass, but Sammy Jones would never forgive Grace for that moment. In the famed game where Grace refused to leave the field after being given out LBW, Grace went on to score 400 not out. When he left the field, the scorebook said 399, but Grace told the scorer to round it up. Grace had spent his entire career bullying people, pushing the term gentleman as far as it would go, laughing it up as a shamateur claiming huge expenses and getting his own way. He had played in Australia, Malta, Ceylon, Scotland, Ireland, New Zealand, Canada and the US before the modern Olympics had even begun. He would have seen no difference in changing a score in a normal match than he would have in running out the naive Sammy Jones. But Grace didn't do this in a match against 22 blokes from Grimsby. He did it in a national sporting contest. And if he didn't know it at the time, these cricket matches now meant something far more. You weren't just playing for a team or region, you were playing for something bigger. National pride would get the very best out of athletes the world over a secret pill for motivation. And on that day, that one slight may have awoken it within the Australians, and especially one man. As Sammy Jones left the field, the next batter in was the demon Fred Spofford. He was a man of anger and fury on the best of days, and this was the exact wrong man to walk into that situation. Grace would have said something, or smirked, or just been smug, and Spofford would have raged. Spofford made a duck, and if there was any noise made by a single English player, that would have made it all worse. Spofford told Murdoch, I swear to you, 
England will not win this. Australia went into the final innings of the match with an 85-run lead. Even in a low-scoring match, they were way behind. At the change of innings, Spotheth went into the English change room and abused Grace. Grace probably saw this as a victory in itself. After much swearing, Spotheth left Grace with, this will lose you the match, before saying to his own players, I'm going to bowl at the old man, I'm going to frighten him out. And then a cry that Australian bowlers have, one way or another, believed ever since. This thing can be done. George Bonner, Australia's big hitter and the sort of guy who looked like he just walked off a farm in Wyoming, walked up to Grace. He spoke to him, I'm sure using all of his six foot six inches to look down on him. If we don't win the match, WG, after what you have done, I won't believe there is a God in heaven. Kind of oblivious to the fact that he was in his own way talking to a God. Monkey Hornby, England's captain, put himself up the order. He had batted at 10 in the first innings and now he was opening. He would make nine, his highest test score. Spothus had Hornby and Barlow out with consecutive balls. England were only 15 runs into their chase. But then there was a partnership. The sort of partnership that ends games when you're only chasing 65. Grace was batting with Happy Jack George Elliott. They scored easily. They hit the ball hard. And with only two wickets down, they passed 50. The bookmakers put Australia in as 6-1 to one outsiders. And then the demon changed ends. Something happened to Spothus at the Vauxhall end. Neville Carter's described it. He seemed taller than he was half an hour ago, the right arm more sinuous, and there was no more excitement in him. He was cold-blooded. People often say that Spotheth went on a rage fuel rampage, but actually what he did was far more sinister. The rage got to him early on, and he couldn't control it. And then what he did was let all that rage go, and he just targeted the result. More serial killer than spree killer. Spotheth didn't explode the stumps of Grace's batting partner. He merely removed them. Grace was so spooked at the other end. Maybe he saw the look in the demon's eye, but he was out to boil only two runs later. When a team has someone with the gravitational pull of Grace, his dismissal leaves a gaping black hole. They only needed 32 runs with six wickets in hand when Grace left the crease. But a good bowler smells blood. You can often hear it from the scream at getting the breakthrough wicket. Other times it's in their eyes. You could see it with Warm when he took the wicket of Herschel Gibbs in the 1999 World Cup. People like Curtly Ambrose and Fred Truman had it for pretty much their entire career. It's the ability to take one wicket and turn that wound into a corpse. Who better for Australia? Who worse for England? The demon. The next few overs. Maiden, 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 and maiden. That was 12 consecutive maidens bowled after Grace went out. Australia deliberately allowed a single so they could switch the batsmen that they were targeting. Had Spoffers taken a shiv out and knifed the batters in the abdomen after each over, he would have made no more damage. Eventually it was too much and Spoffers just bowled Alfred Littleton. At five wickets down with England losing much blood, Hornby stuffed with the batting order once more. Spotheth would have known that. When A.G. Steele came out ahead of C.T. Stud, the demon's evil genius would have sensed it. Steele could bat, but Stud had made 300s against Australians that summer. C.T. was the most majestic of the majestic Stud brothers, and he was being moved down the order, even after it was his 100 that gave Australia its only first-class loss on the tour. Spotheth went through Steele like butter, then Reed, then Lucas. Still no C.T. Stud coming out to bat. They said he was wrapped in a blanket, shivering from fear. He said it was because he was cold. There is a story that is often repeated, that it became so tense at this point that one man actually died. Actually, that man expired before the innings, perhaps anticipating the tension. Another man apparently chewed through an umbrella, if that's possible. And poor CT started. He looked like a ghost as he walked out. 
Studs started at the non-striker's end as Boyle took the wicket of Barnes, and then Ted Peake came in. He took one look at Stud and decided that he was in no state to get the runs. Peake was an old left-arm spinner. He never passed 13 in a test. England only needed nine runs. Pete had a friendly moustache, the sort that a friendly school bus driver might wear. The demon's moustache wouldn't spit on a moustache like that. Pete wasn't physically equipped to play Spotheth on a normal day, and Stud looked even less likely. So Pete swung at Boyle. He hit two runs and then missed one. Boyle hit the stumps. The Colonials had beaten the best of the Empire. The demon had defeated God. Australia had beaten England for the sixth time, but this was the one that mattered. This changed everything. Spoffers was a Michael Jordan-like sociopathic competitor. All he wanted to do was win. But what he didn't know was that whatever drove him, whatever made him do that, well, it didn't just light a fire under him and his teammates. It lit a fire in cricket that continues to rage to this day. This is what ran in the Sporting Times three days later, written by Bloobs. In affectionate remembrance of English cricket, which died at the Oval on the 29th of August, 1882, deeply lamented by a large circle of sorrowing friends and acquaintances. R.I.P. N.B. The body will be cremated and the ashes will be taken to Australia. The urn would follow a few years later. But that fire, it began right here. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. 